0: Well, tonight we have another topic from the book of Revelation. We're looking at the 144,000 of the book of Revelation, and this is a topic where we need the Lord's wisdom, because once again, we realize that there's a a variety of different understandings of this topic, but we want to know what the Lord tells us, and what does the Bible have to say that's important for us this evening. So before we begin, why don't we bow our heads for prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, Lord, we're so thankful that we can come to You as Your children on this beautiful Monday and evening. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to study Your Word. And Lord, as we look today at the 144,000, what Revelation talks about as it looks at Your last day people, Father, we just pray that You would touch our hearts, that You would touch our minds. And Father, that each one of us would be in that group of people. Father, we pray that You would help us to be inspired by Your Spirit, that we would draw closer to You and get to know you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's going to be like every other evening, and we're going to start our study in the book of Revelation. And I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 this evening. Revelation chapter 7, as we look at the important topic of the 144,000. Now, 144,000, many people have different questions surrounding this, but what's interesting about the 144,000 is that these are the people that we see who are saved when they're living at the end of time. When Jesus comes back, these are the people who are ready to meet him. Now, if there's one group I want to know more about, it would be those people who are ready to meet Jesus, right? And this is what the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at the 144,000. Now, we're going to be looking at this like we have at many of our other studies, trying to understand what are the characteristics of these people, what is it that the Bible is really telling us through the symbolic language that draws us closer to Jesus? And we're going to start by doing that by looking at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1. Now Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1 we've looked at already in part in our study of the mark of the beast and the seal of God, but we're going to pick it up again tonight looking at the 144,000. Notice what it says. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till the servants of God are sealed in their walk. Now this is what we've we've looked at this passage of scripture already and we realize that there's a sealing taking place, right? Now can you have both the seal of God and the mark of the beast? Is that possible? No, we realize it's one or the other, right? You either have the mark of the beast or you have the seal of God. And so as we're looking at these people, these are the people who have the seal of God. Now we realize that the mark of the beast and the seal of God take place in the last days, right? Right before Jesus comes, and we looked more specifically in the meeting on the mark of the beast, that no one has the mark of the beast today, right? Until it's forced by legislation, we realize that no one can have it. And it's the same thing with the seal of God. Sure, the Holy Spirit seals our hearts, right? But we realize that the sealing that Revelation chapter 7 is talking about is one that takes place in the last days. And notice who it is who has this seal. It says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of who? Children of Israel were sealed. Now this is interesting. We see that there's symbolic language being used describing the last days, right? And describing the last days and the destruction coming upon the earth, the Bible describes it as winds that are getting ready to mow down the trees and the seas and the people of God, right? And there's four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the winds of strife. And as they're holding back the winds of strife, God says don't let anything bad happen to them till they're sealed. And how many people does the Bible say that are sealed in the last days? It says there's 144,000. Now, we're going to look at tonight is that a literal number? Is it a symbolic number? What is the Bible talking about there? But also, it gives us another characteristic, and it says of the 144,000 that they were of the tribes of the children of who? Of Israel. Now I want to ask you a question. When the Bible writer is describing the last days, the people who are alive when Jesus comes and are ready to meet Him, and it says that they're from the tribes of Israel, does that mean that it's only people who are Israelites by nationality are going to be saved? Is that what the Bible is saying? Is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? Well, tonight we're going to be looking at it that it is not consistent with the rest of Scripture, but what is the Bible talking about? Notice as it continues on, this one is not on the screen, but notice what Revelation chapter 7 and verse 5 says. It says that there's 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, and then it goes through verse 5 through 8, and it starts naming the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice the first one. It says of the tribe of Judah, how many? 12,000. I want to ask you, how many tribes are there? There's 12, right? 12 times 12 is how many? 144. And then you realize that there's 12,000. So what the Bible is saying is that there's going to be 12,000 from each tribe of Israel that's going to be sealed and ready for Jesus to come. Well, does the Bible tell us anything more about Israel that would help us understand this topic today? You know, there's a lot of people when they look at Bible prophecy that they think that the literal nation of Israel has a large involvement in last day Bible prophecy. Now, we're going to look at that. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible says is consistent throughout Scripture, that it's only the Israelites going to be saved? Many people are looking for the rebuilding of the temple to take place in Jerusalem. They're looking for the Antichrist to come over in the Middle East. But is that what the Bible is talking about when it's mentioning Israel? Now, we have to remember, when the Bible talks about Israel, we we know a lot about them through the Old Testament, right? Right? We've read the books of Genesis. We've read the books of Exodus where the Israelites come up out of Egypt and they're they're there as God's people wandering through the wilderness. But the question is, what does the idea of the the 144,000 being Israelites, how does that help us to understand who is saved in the last days? Well, what we're going to look at tonight is who is Israel And is there an application? Is it only literal Israel that will be saved? Notice this passage of Scripture. How many of you have ever wondered where the idea of Israel comes from? I don't know if you're anything like me. I didn't know where it started in the Bible. But notice we're going to find something here. And this helps us to understand the, the wrestling of God with Israel. I'm sorry, I advanced one slide too quickly. Before we get to that slide, go with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Before we get there, we want the background of knowing who is Israel and where did the idea of the Israelites come from? Where did this name originate? Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. Genesis chapter 32. Now, many of you are familiar with this story and you've read it before many times in your Bibles. And Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, 22 begins a story that we know of Jacob wrestling with the angel. We're familiar with that story, right? Jacob wrestling with the angel, and we realize as Jacob is arrested by an angel in the middle of the night, he doesn't know who he is, and he starts to wrestle there, and after the fight is over, God tells him something. Notice what verse 28 says. It says, and he says, your your name shall no longer be called what? Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, this is interesting. Why is it that after the wrestle that Jacob has with God, that God gives him a different name? Have you ever wondered about that? You know, why does God just rename someone after a fight? Well, what is the name so important, or why is the name so important in Scripture? Well, you realize that the word for name is the exact same word for reputation or character in the Bible. So when God is renaming Jacob, you see Jacob had wrestled with God, and before that time you know he had lied to his family, right? He was running as a fugitive, running away from his brother, and he had fallen away from God per se. But now he comes to the point where he's wrestling with God, and by the grace of God he was able to overcome and to prevail. And God says no longer am I going to allow your name to be what it was before, but I'm going to name you Israel, which is the idea of one who prevails with God. Now, how many of you would rather have a name, one who prevails with God, than a name that means surplanter or deceiver? I think that'd be a pretty good name change, right? And so we realize that the name of Israel starts by God giving it to how many people? One person. Okay, we just need to keep this in mind as we get through our study. So God gives the name Israel to one person, and Israel, or Jacob, has how many sons? Well, he has 12 sons, right? And the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, we're just, we're just building a foundation here trying to figure out what the Bible is talking about. So the name Israel is given to one person. That person has 12 sons and the 12 sons become the nation of Israel. Now... We're going to realize this as we read Exodus chapter 4. This is a verse that was up on the screen earlier. That God not only includes Jacob, or now Israel, as Israel, but he, it broadens this to all of his descendants. Notice what he says. This is where Moses goes to Egypt to free the Israelites from their bondage. And notice what he says. God is speaking here and he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my what.'" my son and my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now I want to ask you a question. Was the literal Jacob or Israel in bondage in Egypt at that time? No, he was far dead, right? We realize it was just his sons. The 12 sons and have now become the 12 tribes of Israel and they're in bondage in Egypt. And God is saying, first of all, Israel was a name that was given to Jacob, but now we see that it's a name that's given to all of Jacob's descendants, and they become what's known as the Israelites, right? You've heard that term before, the Israelites or the Jews. Now we're trying to understand the concept of this Israel throughout the Bible because it says it's important in Revelation chapter 7 because the people who are saved at the end of time are Israelites, but does the Bible continue to give us any more understanding about Israel? Well, I want to ask you a question. Why did God choose the Israelites or the Jewish people as his special people? You realize that he did that, right? God chose them as a special people. He gave a covenant to them. He gave them great promises and all of these things. Why did God do that? you can look at some of the minor prophets and you can look at Jeremiah and things like that. And what's interesting, at the beginning of Jeremiah and Isaiah, both of them talk about how God wanted to bless the Israelite people so that they could be an example to the world of what happens when a nation fully surrenders their life to God. Now, wasn't that, isn't that consistent with your picture as you've read through the Old Testament, that God blesses Israel so that all of the surrounding nations can see that, man, if I would surrender my life to Jesus, God would give me these blessings too, right? He didn't want any of the diseases of the Egyptians to fall upon them. So when they see a healthy nation, they think, man, God has a really great plan. And they continue to walk through them. Now, I want to ask you a question. God had that great intention for His people, Israel, but was the peop- were the people of Israelite faithful and complying with God's plan for them? Now, many of you have read the Old Testament, right? And you read the Old Testament about how God works a miracle. God does something amazing, and then what happens to the Israelites? They fall away, right? And they go away, and they go after strange gods, and then they come back. And then they fall away, and then they come back and you realize that God was wanting them to be his own people, but they kept rejecting the leading of the Lord. Now, as they continued to reject the leading of the Lord, God realized that his desires for Israel were not able to be fulfilled. How many of you have realized that you wanted to do something good for your children, but sometimes you're not always able to do it because they won't comply? For example, my mom used to tell us if we would do our chores, we could then go outside and ride our bicycles, right? Now my brother and I loved riding our bicycles, but sometimes, even though my mom wanted to give us those blessings, I didn't do my chores, right? I wasn't compliant, I didn't do my part of the work, I didn't allow the the work that my mom asked me to do to be accomplished in my life, and so I wasn't able to reap the benefit, right? Now we realize that all the promises of God are conditional. Not conditional upon are we good enough, right? Because we're never good enough. But are we willing to cooperate with the Lord and allow Him to have His will completed in our lives? Does that make sense? And so as God was longing to do that for Israel, we see that they weren't compliant. And the question is, is what happened when the nation of Israel was not willing to respond positively to the leading of the Lord? You know, Jesus gives us a parable that helps us understand this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, notice Jesus talks about this very thing that God had a wonderful plan for Israel, but because of their stubborn and hard hearts, God was not able to accomplish what He longed to do for them. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Now Jesus here is talking to a group of the Jews or the Israelites, and notice the words and the parables that Jesus gives, and make sure to pay close attention because you're going to realize that it's pretty obvious what Jesus is talking about. Matthew 21 verse 33, it says, "Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to a vine dresser, and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants, the vine dressers, that they might receive its fruits. Now, you're getting the imagery, right? This man has a wonderful vineyard. He's prepared it well. He has a tower there for the safety of the people. He's put a hedge around it, and then he's given the responsibility of someone else to take care of it, and he goes into a far country. Now, at the time of the harvest, he sends his vine dresser to go reap what he should have sown. Now, notice what happened. His servant, sorry, my wife is correcting me. Thank you for that. His servant is who he sends. Verse 35, notice what it says. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. How were his servants received? Not very positively, right? Okay, well, l- notice what happens. Verse 36. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, if you were the owner of this place, would you start getting a little bit frustrated? They kill your servants, they beat one, they you know, and then they send another group and they do the same thing over again. And notice what happens here. Notice the language, verse 37. Then last of all, he sent his who? His son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us what? Kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now this is interesting. Jesus tells a story of what happens to those God had entrusted with his vineyard, right? This is the idea that's going on. And God had entrusted a group with his vineyard, and when he sends his servants to them, the people killed them. Now before we get on to thinking that we're just understanding this, let's finish reading it, and then we'll give a little more of an application. Verse 43, after Jesus finished speaking about this. Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another who? Nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to what? To powder. Now notice verse 45. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, they perceived that He was speaking of who? Of them. Who is Jesus talking about in this story? You see, Jesus is standing before the Jewish nation and the leader's there, and He starts telling this parable about you know, God has a vineyard and He went off to a far country. Now isn't that what happened? God created and we realize He didn't leave us when He went off to heaven, but He went off to a far country and while God was there, He entrusted a group of people to take care of His land. Now isn't this what the children of Israel were supposed to do? They were supposed to be God's chosen people on the earth. But when God sent His messengers or His servants, I want to ask you, who were God's servants that He was sending? His prophets? I mean, can you think of in the story when God sent the servants or the vine dresser sent His servants, what did they do to Him? They killed them they beat them, all those things. Did they do that to God's prophets when he sent them? Do you remember where Jeremiah ended up for a little while? He was in a pit. you remember that other prophets were killed? All these things. You know, God is trying to communicate with his people, but they want nothing to do with it. Well, did God stop when they first rejected his prophets? No, he sent another group, right? And he sent more, and he sent more, and he's trying to do all that he can, but finally it comes to the point where they won't listen to him, and God says, you know what I'm going to do? I know how I can reach my people. I'll send my Son. Well, God sends His Son to this earth, and I want to ask you a question. Did the Jewish nation accept Jesus or reject Jesus? It's pretty clear, right? Jesus, the Son of God, was hanging on the cross. They rejected Jesus. And Jesus, what did He say in verse 43? When this happened, He says, therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you. Who's the you? Israel, right? The Jewish name. It's not going to be, you're not going to be my special people anymore. I'm going to give it to who? What does it say? I will be giving it to another nation who's bearing the fruits of it. All right? Are we understanding the, the, the progress that we've seen here? God gives the name Israel to one man. That man has children, and out of his descendants is built the nation of Israel. God longed to bless the nation of Israel, but they turned away from God and they would not listen or heed His voice or His counsel. And so God finally says, I'm going to send you my son, and they reject His son and kill Him. And so God says, now it's time for me to give my people or my land to another nation. Well, I want to ask you a question. Who does the Bible tell us was that second nation when Israel didn't fulfill their work? Notice what the Bible says here as we continue on, looking what does the Bible tell us about who this second nation is. Now, Matthew chapter 2, this is where we're going, and we're not skipping something, but we're just trying to have a parallel structure here in understanding the topic. First, it was given to one person, and that person's descendants then became heirs of, of God's promises or God's people. And we're going to notice in the second nation that God is now entrusted as His people. There's a similar flow. First, God gives His promise of that one person being Israel. And then the descendants of that person become the new Israel. And notice what the Bible has to say about this. Now, Matthew chapter 2, speaking about Jesus, remember that Jesus was born in the time where Herod was expecting a new king to come. And so Herod made a decree that how many people were to be killed? Everyone under the age of what? Two years old. Well, Jesus was born during this time, and so an angel comes and tells Joseph to flee to what country? Egypt. Now, notice what's interesting. In commenting on that passage and that story, notice what happens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. It says, "...that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my..." What? Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, this is an interesting language, right? If, if he was just saying, well, out of Egypt I've called my son, that would, be, that would be the only passage we need to understand it. But notice what he says. That it might be what? What does that say? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, this is interesting. Have you ever stopped to look at this before? The Bible is telling us that when Jesus went to Egypt and that when He came back out of Egypt, it was so that Jesus could fulfill a prophecy that one of the prophets had spoken about before. Isn't that what it's saying here? Now, what is that prophecy that the Bible gives us to understand what's happening here? Notice the book of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Notice what the prophet Hosea said. He says, when Israel was a what? A child, I loved him, And out of Egypt I called my what? Now this is really interesting. The Bible in Matthew chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was called out of Egypt as a fulfillment of a prophecy. And that prophecy was that this one given here in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, and that's that God would call who out of Egypt? Israel, his child. Now is this before or after the exodus? about 2,000 years after the physical Israelite exodus. And here the Bible is telling us that there was going to be someone being called out of Israel, and that person would be called Israel, and that person was God's son. Well, Matthew chapter 2, in lining these verses up, we realize that that person who was spoken of was who? Jesus. Now, this is very interesting. The Bible tells us that Israel was first a name given to one person. That one person had sons, and then they became part of God's chosen people, but that nation rejected God, right? And God said, I'm taking away the privileges of being called Israel from you and giving it to another nation. Now, when the Bible is speaking about the other Israel, or the other nation who is to come, or the person receiving the promises of God, it tells us that now there's not only one Israel who was is given the name, but there's another person by the name of Jesus who was given the name Israel, which is God's chosen people and his son. Now, we're going to walk through this and understand what is this significant about in our understanding. Remember, we're still trying to understand uh, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4, understanding what does Israel have to do in God's plan of salvation. What's interesting is that we find in the Bible that Jesus now becomes the new person of God. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's very clear in Scripture. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the one, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was where the promises of God were centered, which is what the old nation of Israel had. Old nation of Israel has now passed off the scene, and God is building a new Israel, but this time we're going to realize it's a spit of spiritual Israel that's not just built in one location in Jerusalem, but it extends further than that. God tells us that just like the name Israel was given to Jacob, now the name Israel is given to Jesus. And now if we're following the same pattern of the Old Testament, then all of the descendants of Jesus should become part of this new Israel. Wouldn't that be right? Jacob's descendants were the part of the twelve tribes of Israel, and now Jesus' descendants are supposed to be the body or the tribes of Israel. Is this making sense? Notice what this passage of Scripture says. It says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. It says, if you are Christ, then you are whose seed? Abraham's seed. Now, did you ever hear the Jews boasting about the fact that they were of Abraham? John chapter 8. We'll look at that in a little bit. But we realize that they boast about Abraham. Why are they boasting about being part of Abraham's seed? Well, that means they're part of the covenant people, or they're part of Israel. And God tells us something here. He says, if you are of Christ, then you are of whose seed? Abraham's seed. In other words, if you're of Christ, you are now part of Israel, not literal Israel sent over in Jerusalem, but now part of spiritual Israel and heirs according to the promise. You see, the very interesting thing about Bible prophecy and Bible history is that many people are looking to literal Israel to be a fulfillment of God's last day people. But it's very clear that God doesn't coerce someone into following him. Would you agree with that? God doesn't force people to be His people. And after 2,000 years of the nation of Israel rejecting God, God says, fine, go ahead. Go your own way. I'm not going to cause you to do all the things that I want you to do. I'm not going to make you reap all the blessings that you have to reap. But simply, I'm going to choose another nation and now the head of the nation is going to be Jesus Himself. And Jesus now is the Father of Israel and all of His spiritual descendants become... The heirs of the promises. Is that clear from Scripture? Now, the reason why this is important is because it helps us to understand what Revelation is talking about. But notice we're going to walk through a couple more passages that help solidify this point that it's not any longer about the physical, literal nation of Israel, but now it's about the spiritual nation of Israel. And notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It says, He is not a Jew which is one what? outwardly. Now, isn't that very interesting? He's not a Jew. Who? Who's not a Jew? Well, one who looks like a Jew. Well, this is interesting. What is God talking about then? He's not a Jew who's one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But He is a Jew which is one what? Inwardly and circumcision that is of the heart. You see, God is no longer concerned about the physical nation of Israel. They've decided to reject God and God allowed them to do that. But God says, now I have a new nation, and it's the nation of those who follow Jesus Christ as the new spiritual Israel. It's those who may not be a Jew in outward form. How many of you have ever checked your heritage to see if you're Jewish? Well, I realize that I'm not. Hey, you have, are, are you? Okay, well, no, he's not. All right, well, you, you don't get the literal, the literal blessings then. Well, we understand. But what we do realize is that we might today not be part of the Jewish nation, right? And we can be okay to say that. And the reality is, is that we can still be God's people. Isn't that the truth of the gospel? And this is what the Bible is saying. Hey, look, you don't have to be part of literal Israel to be God's last day people. But all you have to do is be one that has the circumcision of the heart. In other words, cutting away the stubbornness of the heart, being reconverted, being born again, having that experience of Jesus living in you. And because Jesus is now our leader and our physical head, we all become part of spiritual Israel. Does this make sense? Notice the transition of the Bible from the literal nation to the spiritual people. And we see this very interesting in Revelation is that it's not so interested in the physical people, but now it's interested in the spiritual nation of Israel. Now the Bible continues to talk about the nation of Israel and it tells us in Romans chapter 9, if you have any questions about this, I would encourage you, read Romans chapters 9 through 11. Paul gives his dissertation on the transition from literal Israel to spiritual Israel. But I, just, I grabbed an excerpt from it that helps us to understand this point. In other words, we're not just going to one passage of Scripture, but we're seeing it consistently throughout. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, it says, They are not all Israel who are what? Of Israel. Now isn't that really interesting? God says you're not necessarily an Israelite even though you're from Israel. Now why is he saying this? Because we realize that those who are part of spiritual Israel or the part of God's blessings are not those who are just native to Israel but those who have chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting? 1 Corinthians chapter. 10 and verse 18, Paul uses the term that you're the Israelites of the flesh. In other words, you were born there, sure, but you're not of God. And then what's interesting is God also uses the term in Galatians chapter 3 that they are the Israel of God. And we've looked at part of Galatians chapter 3 already. In other words, there's this transition that goes from the literal nation of Israel to now the spiritual kingdom. Now you ask, why is this important? Well, you see, when the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and we've read this first portion already, but notice the last portion. When we looked at those people, part of the 144,000 who are sealed in the last days, it says 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, is the Bible talking about the literal nation of Israel here? No, it's talking about the spiritual Israel that is now supposed to be part of God's people. Now, it's interesting to note how the Bible goes through and lists 12,000 from each tribe. And what's very interesting is that God says that there's going to be equal opportunity for everyone to be saved, right? In other words, it's not 7,000 from Gad, and it's not 25,000 from Judah. In other words, God doesn't play favorites. But God allows everyone the equal opportunity of salvation, right? We realize this is what the Gospels all about that there's not God judging someone if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, will you be saved? But God clearly says that it's only those who are of spiritual Israel who will be sealed. Now, this might be, there might be some more questions about spiritual Israel or literal Israel, and if so, I would encourage you to write them in your questions down and put them in a jar on the back table, and make sure to pick up some of the literature on it. You'll realize that very clearly in the Bible that there's this transition. Now, I want to make one more thing clear before we move on in talking about the 144,000. Is it possible for a Jew today to be saved? Absolutely. Is it possible today for a Native American to be saved? Is it possible for even a white American to be saved? Maybe, right? No, no, we we realize, yeah, God, God gives it to everyone, right? God is not being prejudiced on who will be saved. God doesn't care if it's physical, literal Israel. God doesn't care if it's, you know, what the color of your skin is or anything like that, but God offers salvation freely. And we realize that that was even the case in the Old Testament. You could be saved if you were a Gentile, and you realize that even coming out of Egypt, that there were Gentiles who came along with them. But what's very interesting is that the people of Israel are no longer the representation of God's blessings on this earth anymore. That's just what we're looking at. We're not saying no one can be saved or they can't experience the blessings of God, but we realize that God doesn't look at nationality for salvation, but he looks at the heart. I think this is important for us to realize, too, God doesn't care what church we're from, but he looks at the heart. Did you know that? God doesn't care what nation you're from, but he looks at the heart. He doesn't care what your family history is. He doesn't care if you have a line of pastors. He doesn't care if you're the son of a pastor. He doesn't care if you are a pastor. God looks at the heart. And this is what we see very clearly in the transition from literal Israel to spiritual Israel, is that God is looking at the heart of the issue just like he always had. And God is looking for a people who he can call his own. Now, Revelation chapter 7 is not the only place where we find the name 144,000 used, but we also find it in Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. I would encourage you to open your Bibles there. I know it's on the screen, but we'll be looking at it for a little bit. Revelation chapter 14 in verse 1. And what we're going to find out here is that Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, give us many more details about who these 144,000 are. It helps us to understand some of their characteristics more fully as we realize that it's not just about those who are of literal Israel or a bunch of Hebrews being sealed in the last days, but the Bible talks about there being characteristics that God is looking for in His last day people here on this earth. Revelation chapter 14, and verse 1, notice what it says. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, we haven't really learned much about the characteristics of the 144,000 yet, but we realize that God is telling us about the 144,000, but notice these next verse about how God describes who these people are. These are the ones who are not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb whithersoever he go. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Now what we want to do this evening is look at a couple of these characteristics and try to understand how is it that God is literally describing his people. I think we've asked this question before in this seminar already. When God is looking at the 144,000, is he saying that they will be people who literally live on top of a mountain and chase a sheep? Is that what's happening? No, right? That's symbolic language. And who is the lamb, right? jesus john chapter 1 jesus is the lamb of god which takes away the sins of the world and these are a group of people who are they with jesus or are they against jesus they're with him right we realize revelation chapter 13 those are the people who are against jesus but revelation chapter 14 tells us that now he sees a group of people who are with jesus and the question is what do god's last day people look like who are with jesus and the time where Jesus is about to come. Is that a fair question, right? That's what we're looking at in the 144,000. Well, we're given several characteristics, several characteristics of these people, and the first one is it says that they have their father's name written where? On their foreheads. Now, we covered this extensively a couple nights, that when God talks about things being on the foreheads, he's not talking about a literal stamp that he just puts on there, right? Is God's last day people just going to be walking around with a stenciled thing that says Elohim or Jesus or something like that on their foreheads? Is that what he's talking about? No, absolutely not. So what is it talking about when the Bible says that they are going to have their father's name written on their forehead? Well what's interesting, and we talked about this already a little bit, is that the word for name in the Bible is also the same word for reputation. In other words, these people had the same reputation that their father had. These people have the same character of Jesus as Jesus had. I wanna I want to take you with me to a couple passages of Scripture. Keep your finger in Revelation chapter 14, but turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, as we're trying to understand the name of the Father, notice what the name of God, what God talks about, that His name is. We're going to learn a little bit about this in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, Moses is there on the mountain with God and he's talking with the Father. A privilege that many of us really wish we could have, right? How many of you would love to talk to the Father face to face? Well, in heaven we have it, right? Praise the Lord that we can have it. And even through Jesus on this earth, we're talking to the Father. But notice what this interaction is that Moses has. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. As Moses is talking with the Lord, there's one thing that Moses really wants, and notice what he says. And he said, show me your what? Glory. Glory. Now, how many of you would like to see the glory of God? How many of you would think it would just be amazing to see God in his glory? Well, God says, notice what he says in verse 19. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the what? Name of the Lord before you. Now, this is interesting. Moses is asking for his glory, and says God says, well, I'll give you my name. That must mean there's some synonymous understanding that glory and name are part of the same idea. Now, notice the interaction as it continues on. Exodus chapter 34. We're just skipping forward a couple verses, but you can read them at home when you get there. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 5. Moses is asked to see the glory of the Lord. The Lord tells him that he'll show his name to him. And notice Exodus chapter 34 and verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the what? The name of the Lord. Now then Revelation chapter 14, the people have the name of the Lord on their foreheads. So what is the name of the Lord? Notice what it continues on to say. He proclaims the name of the Lord, and it says, And the Lord passed before him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions of sins, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, this is very interesting. Moses asks God to show him his glory, and God says, okay, I'll I'll give you my name, right? In other words, that has something to do. Glory, name, reputation are all one and the same. And God, as he comes to proclaim his name to Moses, does God just stop by giving Moses his name? No, he says, the Lord, the Lord God. Okay, that gives us his name. But then he continues on to give us attributes about God. Wouldn't you agree with that? He tells us a little bit about his character, Right? Notice what we find out. It says that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's long-suffering, he's abounding in goodness and truth, he keeps mercy for thousands, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sins, but he doesn't allow just people to walk along guiltily and have no consequences for that. Right. That's how he kind of ends it off. Now, the, this helps us to understand what is the name of the Lord. Well, the name of the Lord isn't just his name, but it's also his character. Would you agree with that? When he asks for his name, and God says, I'll give you my name, here's my name, and he starts giving him his characteristics, this is clearly what the name of the Lord is. Now when we understand this, in light of Revelation chapter 14, we see that God, when he looks at his last day people, he doesn't look at a bunch of people who are just playing church. Now do you know what I mean when I'm saying playing church? If you don't know what I mean, I can tell you a little bit about my life, okay, because I played church for years, and I'm very familiar with it, right? Right? You go through the motions. You, you might have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof, right? Paul talks about that. And you realize that you're kind of just doing things because you've been told to do it. And it's about the actions and it's about the. But it's not really a hard issue, right? But there finally comes a point where you fully surrender your life to Jesus. And all that you want is for Jesus' way to be in your life, right? You want to know the Bible, you want to have it in your heart and in your mind. And God says that His last day people will be so much like Him that people in their foreheads, in other words, in their minds, in their thinking, that they're thinking along the same lines as Jesus did. Now, isn't that pretty amazing? To me, that's a promise because I don't have it today. How many of you think that you never err and you never sin? Is anyone like that yet? No, we realize that we're not. But we realize that the Bible, in talking about the last day people, that there's going to be a people who are so close to Jesus that the character of God is in their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I want in my life. That's why we're here, right? So we see that the Father's name is written on their forehead. Now, why is this so important, especially in light of spiritual Israel? Turn with me to John chapter 8. We will move on past this point, I promise, but I I think this is very important for us to understand. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and verse 39. Verse 39. Notice there's many people who claim to have the name of Jesus, but they don't have the character of God, right? Many people walk around professing Christianity, and notice that that's not any different from the time of the Jews. John chapter 8 and verse 39, and notice this transaction here. They answered and said to him, him being Jesus, Abraham is our father. They had the name of God's people or of the leader of God's people in their midst, right? Abraham is our father. But Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the what? The works of Abraham. In other words, the Jews were walking around boasting in the fact that they were Jewish. Right? I'm Jewish. I'm going to be saved. I have, I have the salvation through my lineage. I know the Father. His name's Abraham, and I'm of that seed, and I'm going to be saved. And Jesus just looks at them and says, You're not of Abraham. If you were of Abraham, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and you would be doing the works of Abraham, right? Your life would look like that of Abraham. Now they continue to go on, and Jesus says, I'll tell you who your father is. And do you know who Jesus tells them their father is? Well, he says, your father is is Satan, the devil, right? Now, I'm not telling you that today, right? We're we're not in that. But what this helps us to understand is that how many times do you and I claim to be Christian or we claim to be of Christ, but we reject the character of God from being placed in our own life? The Bible says God's last day people aren't going to have that experience, that they're going to be so clearly aligned with Jesus. Their lives are fully surrendered. That because of Jesus' faithfulness, they say, Lord, I love you with all my heart. Anything that you ask me to do, I'll do it. I want to spend time with you. I want to know you. I want to get right? That's that's what we do. And God says that when he's looking at his last-day people, that this is the characteristic that he sees. Now notice Revelation chapter 14 gives us another characteristic, and it tells us that these people were redeemed from the earth. I want to ask you a question: what does it mean to redeem something? To rescue it, to buy it back. It wasn't yours, right? Or it might have gone out of your possession for a little bit of time. We realize how many of you have ever heard the good old hymn, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. Have you ever heard that song before? Or you have those songs that redeem by the blood of the Lamb. And you realize that what the Bible is talking about when it says redeemed is at one point you were lost and now you're not, right? You're, You're redeemed, you're saved. And the Bible in describing God's last day people, this is one that I really like, is God doesn't say that they're people who are already wearing halos. In other words, that they've never messed up. But God says, when he looks at these people who now have the character of God in their foreheads and in their lives, it's lived out in them, he says that these are people who were redeemed from among men. Now why would you need to redeem them from among men? It's because they were once lost. How many of you realize that you've been lost before? How many of you realize that you're so thankful that it's by the blood of Jesus that we can be redeemed? And notice in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, talks about that we're, we're washed through the blood of the Lamb, right? We're redeemed, by, not by corruptible seed, but by the very blood of the Son of God. When God looks at the last day people, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I always thought, man, there's no way that I can be ready for Jesus to come. There's no way that I can be ready to meet Him in the cloud. But the Bible tells us, hey, there's, there's, sure, they're going to have the character and they're going to have the, the life of God in them, but it's not because they did it on their own, it's because God redeemed them. It's because God saved them. It's not because they were perfect, it's not because they had no fault, but it's because God was able to purify them and to make them holy. How many of you think that's a blessing? I don't know about you, but I got really excited when I saw that characteristic, that God redeems his people, and that's part of his last day people. Now, notice this next characteristic. It says, these are not defiled with women. Remember reading that through here in Revelation chapter 14? It says that they are ones that are not defiled with women. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is it being literal there? Is it saying that these people, in other words, if you're married and you've been in a a sexual relationship, are you now defiled because you're not a virgin? Is that what the Bible is talking about, that there's going to be no married people in heaven? No, right? The Bible says that the marriage bed is honorable, right? Marriage is a blessing from the Lord. It's a gift from heaven. So he's not talking about those who have been married or those who have have had relations with other people, but what the Bible is talking about is those who have not been spiritually defiled. Now this is very interesting, and we'll look at this more tomorrow night, that Revelation chapter 17 gives the depiction of a woman. And it's a woman riding on a beast and it's mystery Babylon the Great, right? The harlot there. And we realize that all throughout Scripture that there's the idea that the church is God's bride, right? We're familiar with that Scripture. In other words, that the woman is God's church. That's a a symbol of it, and we'll see that that's the symbol that Revelation uses. So when the Bible says that they're not defiled with women, in other words, they're not involved with all the delusion of the false versions of Christianity, right? They're not walking according to the courses of their own desires, but they're taking the Word of God as their only God. This is what the Bible talks about as it talks about the 144,000, and we'll look at that more in depth tomorrow night. Now, There's two more characteristics, and this one I think is the most important of any. There's a characteristic that it says that they followed the lamb wherever he goes. I want to ask you a question. Does that mean that they just followed a literal lamb? No. What does it mean that they followed the lamb wherever they went? They They followed Jesus, right? They followed Jesus wherever he went. Now, this is a very interesting idea. It doesn't just say that they followed the lamb, right, and stopped there. But it says they followed the lamb wherever the lamb went. Now, in other words, if they had been following the lamb up to this point, and they got to this point, and they knew that the lamb was leading them, and they got comfortable there, but the lamb started moving off, did they keep going? Now, how many times do we keep doing that? When the Lord continues to reveal Himself to us and lead us in different places, do we continue to follow Him, or do we dig our roots where He left us? Do we get comfortable? No, God is saying that these are people... Who are going to be following the Lamb or following Jesus wherever He goes? Now, some of you may not be like me, but it's still hard for me to grasp this symbolic language. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Have you ever wondered that thought? I don't, I don't know if I'm just a stickler for understanding, but I've wondered, what does it mean to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do we know how to follow Jesus? Now, notice with me just John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we were just there a moment ago, but John chapter 8 and verse 12. What does Jesus liken himself to that helps us how helps us to know how we can follow him? John chapter 8 and verse 12. You know, there's many things that Jesus likens himself to. And notice what he says here in John chapter 8. Jesus says here, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the what? The light of the world. Now isn't that a blessing? Isn't Jesus been the light of the world in your own heart? He's brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he says, I am the light of the world. He who, what, follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of what? Of life. You see, the Bible talks about that Jesus is the light of the world, and that those who follow him will never be in darkness. Now, my next question is, what does the Bible say is the light? In other words, if Jesus is the light of the world, how is it that we're following him today? Is he some literal star up there in the sky? Is he the? Is he the moon? Is he the? No, we realize that Jesus gives us something that's in our hands now that is our light and our guide. Turn with me to Psalm one nineteen. We just want to understand this. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow the light? Psalm one nineteen. Psalm one nineteen. Psalm one nineteen and verse one o five, the longest psalm and chapter in the Bible. Psalm one nineteen. Verse 105, Jesus tells us that He's the light of the world and that when we follow Him, we will never be in darkness. How is it that we can follow Him? What has God given us to be our light today? Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your what? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now I want to ask you a question. The Bible tells us that the people in Revelation are ones who follow the Lamb wherever He go. In other words, they're following Jesus wherever He is. Now, Jesus helps us to understand that a little bit more. He says, I'm the light of the world. And I am, and the light of the world is also the Word of God, right? The Word is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. In other words, they were following the Word of God in whatever it said. Do you think that could be a clear understanding of what Revelation chapter 14 is saying? Now, this is so important. It's so easy for us to think, well, I thought it said this before, and this is where Jesus led me, and this is what I thought it was. But if Jesus continues to reveal things to us and His Word sheds more light on our path, are we going to continue to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Or are we going to be ones who say, no, I'm satisfied with what I already know? That's not what Revelation chapter 14 depicts as God's last day people, but He depicts them, like each one of us gathered here, as people who long to know the truth about Jesus. Now, here's the last one. It says that these are people who are without fault. Now, to me, this is mind blowing. How many of you have ever read that and thought it's Im- how, it's, it, it has to be near to impossible for the Lord to have a group of people in the last days who are without fault? Now, I want to ask you a question Is it because they got really good at working harder and doing their best in righteousness? that they were able to work themselves into where they had no fault. Is that how they did it? You know, just repetition deepens impression. And as they kept, kept practicing and they kept going, that they finally learned how they could be perfect on their own. Is that what the Bible says? No, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that it's God who wills, who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, we are incapable, completely incapable of doing the will of God. How many of you realize that? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. But the sanctified heart, God is able to give us grace through faith, right? And His grace empowers us to not only forgive our sins, but to also live a life in accordance with the Word of God. Isn't that powerful? God doesn't want us to be the same type of people who keep beating our heads against the wall, not ever finding victory, but He wants us to be people who can live without fault, not by anything we can do, only covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And they're standing in the last day because of the goodness of God. God is able to look at his people and to say they're without fault. Now, as we look at these these characteristics of the 144,000, they follow the lamb. There's, There's some weird switching that happened on that slide. They have the father's name on their forehead. They're redeemed from the earth. They're not defiled, but they're spiritually pure and they are without fault. How many of you say, Lord, I really want to be a part of those people? I want that to be part of who I am. I want to be your people who experience the glory of God and have the character of Jesus written in their heart. Now we realize that the 144,000, God is not using symbolic, or he's not using literal language to describe these people, right? They're not literally following a land. They're not literally standing on Mount Zion. They're not literally... Only 144,000 people. Would you agree with that? It's symbolic, everything else. So we realize that it's just a number representing the people who would be living in the last days of earth's history who are God's chosen people. Now notice notice this passage of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. The Bible tells us, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the reason why God has a group of people in the last days is not because God's an elitist God, but God wants to have a group of people in the last days who so love Jesus that when people look at them, they will see the glorious light of the gospel shining from their life, and they will be drawn to them. Isn't that what we're seeing here? God tells us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, Is it because we're holy on our own? No, it's because Jesus Christ is our leader, right? He's the physical head of the new spiritual Israel. And we realize that Jesus is the one who's going to not only begin the work in us, but is also going to lead us into the gates of heaven. Now my question this evening, in light of all this, is how is it that we can walk closer to God today? Have you ever wondered that question? Lord, how can I have a deeper experience? How can I have an experience like the 144,000? You know, I, I hear about that and it almost sounds idealistic and impossible. How is it that these people were not defiled? You know, They were following the Lamb. They had the character of God on their forehead. How is it that we can be people who have those characteristics as well? I want to share with you a passage of Scripture that's meant a lot to me. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And notice what Paul says here. He says, But we all with unveiled faces... "...beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord." Now, what did we find out the glory of the Lord was? It was His character, right? His name. It was all those things together. So it says, "...we all with unveiled faces, beholding in a mirror, the glory or the character of the Lord, are being what?" What's that word? Transformed. How is it that we're being transformed? Because we're beholding the character of Jesus. Notice what it says. "...are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory." just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, there's a very interesting principle that we can pull out of this verse. And it's that by beholding Jesus, we become changed. Would you agree with that? Isn't that what the Bible is telling us? That as we behold the character or the glory of Jesus, we start to be changed into the same image from glory to glory. And how is it done? It's by the Spirit of the Lord working in our hearts. Would you guys agree with that? Now, would you agree that not only as we behold Jesus are we changed, but how many of you think that we should be spending more time in our Bibles getting to know Jesus? Would you agree with that? We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be spending time with Jesus, getting to know Him on a daily basis, saying, Lord, I want Your character to be imprinted on my mind. I want it to be imprinted on my heart. And Father, help Your character to become infused into who I am, not because of what I'm doing, but because Your Spirit is working in me. Now, do you think Satan knows that there's the principle that by beholding, we become changed? Would you agree with that? Do you think Satan's smart enough to understand that? What's interesting is we realize that by beholding, we not only become changed into God's image if we're beholding Him, but what happens if we behold the things of this world? Do you think that we'll be changed into that image? You know, there's interesting studies that have been done to show the connection between those who watch certain things on television and those who are changed by the things that they watch. They show that people are desensitized by the things that they watch on on multimedia things, and also that as you're watching it, you have things firing called mirror neurons, which as you're watching it, you watch someone killing someone else, and your body has the same mental neurological reaction as if you were the one carrying out the result. Now, what's very interesting about that is by beholding something, we're becoming changed by it. How many of you think that should help inform what we're watching? You know, the Bible says that by beholding Jesus, we become changed into his image. And I don't want to become changed into the image of the world. How many of you realize the world is wicked enough and we don't need to be like them? And we don't want to be changed like them. We don't want to be beholding them, but we want to be beholding Jesus. Now, not only are the things that we watch on television or read in a book, but what about the things that we listen to? Does that change who we are? Could it be that that shapes our character as well? And instead of beholding Jesus and becoming more like Him, we keep beholding the things of this world and we're shifting more and more away from Jesus instead of coming closer to Him. How many of you have ever realized that that's been a reality in your life? You know, the Bible is very clear that we are to be having pure and holy things put in our life. We realize that many of the, much of the music today in, in the secular world is just filled with violence and sin and glorifying those things. And instead of drawing us closer to Jesus, it's pulling us away. And I want to ask you, do we want to be the people who are pulled away from Jesus or become more like him? We want to become more like him, right? So we want to make sure that the things that we walk, the things that we listen to are truly what the Bible says would be beneficial for us. Notice what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, just, pure, lovely, and of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, do what? Think on these things. How much time do we need to spend thinking on the things that are not pure, that are not true, that are not honest, that are not lovely. We don't need to spend time with that, right? But the Bible says how, sh- how can we be people who draw so much closer to Jesus? How can we be God's last day people? Well, it's by spending time in His Word and making sure that the things that we're filling our minds with draw us closer to Jesus instead of pointing us farther away. Would you agree with that? You know, the Bible is looking for last day people who are fully consecrated to the Lord Jesus with their lives fully surrendered. Not just in a piece, but in the whole. That God says that these are people who love me so much that their lives are completely dedicated to his cause. Notice what 1 John 2 said. It says, For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the what? Of the world. You know, the Bible says we don't need to take part in those things. That we're not supposed to love the world or the things that are in the world because if anyone loves it, the love of the Father is not in them. You know, my friends, we're not going to be trying to be keeping up with the modern things of this world. Now, I'm not saying you can't keep up with technology and you have to look odd or anything like that, but we're realizing that our focus is not on this world, but really our focus is on Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And we're being transformed by that instead of by the things of this world. Notice this promise in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. What does it mean to sanctify? We don't use that word much, right? To separate or to set apart, right? In other words, it says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. It's the idea to make you holy, to set you apart, to make you different than the world. Notice that's the work of God and it says that He's going to sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God in these last days is looking for a people who are wholly surrendered to Him. Would you agree with that? That the Bible is looking for people whose lives are completely surrendered to the will of God. You know, there's some people who say, well, how much can I do? How much can I have of the world and still be part of God? Have you ever been guilty of that yourself? How much of the world can I hold on to and still make sure that I'm saved in the end? How much of the things of this life can I possess and still be assured of salvation? You know, there's an interesting story being told about a king who is looking for a new chariot driver. And the king was looking for a new chariot driver, and his interview question was very simple. The first guy came to interview for his chariot driver, and the the king asked him one question. He says, how close could you get to the edge of this cliff if you were driving my chariot? Well, the chariot driver, feeling pretty proud of his ability, said, Well, I'm pretty certain that I could get six inches from the edge of this cliff and still keep you safe. Well, the, the king was impressed by that thought and brought in the next person and asked them, How close could you get to the edge of this cliff and still keep driving the chariot and keep us safe? That second chariot driver said, Well, I bet I could get three inches. I could get three inches from that edge and still keep you safe. Now, I don't know about you. I'd get a little bit nervous at that point. But the third area driver comes for the interview time, and the king asks him the question, how close could you get to the edge and still keep us safe? What do you think his answer was? Well, the first one said six inches. The last one said three inches. And this guy said, you know what? Sir, in all due respect, I would stay as far away from that cliff as I could to keep us safe. You see, this is what God is looking for in the last day. God is not looking to see how close can we get to the world and still be part of his kingdom. God is looking for a people who say, I want to stay as far away from the things of the devil and know Jesus more and be consumed by the life of Christ. This is what Jesus is looking for in His last day. Is it your desire this evening to say, Lord, I want to be part of those people. I want to be part of those who are consumed by knowing Jesus. I want the Word of God to mean everything to me. I don't want to hold on to things that are in this life. I don't want to hold on to things that are separating me from God. But Lord Jesus... I just want my life to be fully surrendered to you. Is that your desire this evening? If it is, why don't we stand together as we pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, Lord, you see our hearts this evening. Father, here we are as your children. We're helpless. We're dependent upon you. And Lord Jesus, we just want our whole lives to be surrendered to you. Lord, you've been so merciful to us. You've been so faithful. And Father, because of the love that you've shown to us, we just want our lives to be fully surrendered to you with nothing between our soul and the Savior. Father, I pray that you would sanctify our hearts, that you would set us apart from this world. And Lord, that we might be part of your people who are ready to meet you when you come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio,